The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So we are in the middle of a series, Justice for All is the title of the series. And the purpose of this series is to unite our church around one idea. What does it mean to do justice? Based on Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And this is the first time that I know of in our, in our history as a church that we are tying a sermon series into our small group environments. And so just a quick show of hands, how many of you all are in a small group doing the Justice for All series? Raise your hand. Awesome. Now, how many of you after week one, you felt just a bit overwhelmed? Raise your hand. A few of you. So whenever you do a study like this, our immediate thought is to jump right quickly to concrete application. And so I'm going to encourage you this morning that this this whole series is going to seem like one big sermon. We're going to push most of the application to the very, very end. But um, I want to encourage you to be diving into those studies as a church. And so today we're going to talk about justice inside the church. Week number three is going to be justice outside the church. Week four will be how do we go from talk to action as a body of, of believers. And so we really want this series to be a launching pad. So when the series ends, it's going to hopefully be just the beginning. And we want this series to be a launching pad for further thought, further prayer, further reflection on what it means for us as a body of Christ to do justice in our city and in the Central Texas area and throughout the world. And so it's going to feel a little bit like we're sort of teasing this thing along, and it's meant to be that way, because we want to make sure we under, that we understand what God is actually calling us to as a church. And so I heard that last week, Stuart Briscoe actually preached three different sermons, three different services. So I went to sermon number one, and I guess most pastors like figure out what they really want to say by service number three. And so um, I heard service number one, 815 last week. So I'm going to summarize for you quickly what he spoke about last week. First, he said, God used the Old Testament prophets to challenge Israel's lack of justice for the poor. And he went to Micah chapter six, verse eight. He said, where it says, he has told you, a man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. He also made the point that justice defined is the creator's passion to put things right. That's a simple definition. The creator's passion to put things right. Now it implies if we believe that things need to be put right, it implies the next point, which is nothing is the way it's supposed to be. Nothing is the way it should be. Did he cover this in services three and, two and three? He did not say any of this. Okay, so I'm educated. This is, this is actually, these are my notes now, so I can take credit for this now, I guess. So, um, but he said that nothing is the way it's supposed to be. And if you were to do a street survey, I think anywhere in the world, if you said to people, hey, do you think things are the way they're supposed to be? Like, do you look at life and see that things are complete, they're whole, things are the way they're supposed to be? I think most would say no. This is true of atheists, agnostics, Buddhists, Muslims, Hindu, whatever faith they have, or lack of faith that they have, they would say, no, things seem messed up. We would use the phrase broken. Things seem broken. And so I would think everyone in our world would agree to a certain extent that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Now, most people disagree on the cause and the solution, but most of us agree that that's the way things are. And so this is a summary of what at least I heard at the early service last, last uh, Sunday, And so before we get to our discussion, I want to do some background work with you. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 15 with me. 
chapter 15, verses 7 and 8 in Deuteronomy. And this is Israel's instruction on how to treat the poor in their midst. And so 15, verses 7 and 8. And it says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. So whenever we read a passage like that, our initial tendency is to think, okay, so how do I apply that to me? We want to jump to a concrete, quick application. And so oftentimes we will think to ourselves, so what is this verse saying? Am I supposed to just go and become a human ATM machine? Just walk down the street and pass out 20s and 50s to whoever may need some cold cash? But before you jump to that kind of application, I want to set some context. Whenever you read the Bible, you've got to understand the context of what's being said in the place that they're in at that time. And so you can't jump that fast to just concrete application when you read something like this. You've got to know there were five ways in which God wanted Israel to help the poor in their nation. The first was called gleaning. If you had a crop, You were not to harvest the outer perimeter of your crop. You were to harvest just the interior and leave the outer edges for those that were poor that could come and gather what they need for sustenance and food. Secondly, there was lending. And this is what's being referenced here in in chapter 15, verses 7 and 8. If someone was in need, you were to lend them what they need. This is lending, not just giving handouts. That meant there was an expectation that they actually eventually pay it back. Over time. And this leads into the third way in which God provided for his poor, and that was through what's called Sabbath year. So every seven years was a a Sabbath year, and if you owed someone money, the Sabbath year meant that your debt was canceled. Try that with your credit card company, right? And so your debt's canceled every seven years. Indentured servants would go free every seven years. And then this led up to the year of Jubilee, which is every seventh Sabbath year, every 49 years, year of Jubilee, this meant that all of the land allotments of Israel would revert back to the initial allotment in Israel when Israel first came into the land. Can you imagine that? Every 50 years, Central Texas just gets reorganized, rebooted. Okay, you no longer own this, you now own this. And so this was an amazing way in which God would try to make sure that no tribe was left behind in an impoverished state in the nation of Israel. And then fifthly, they would give one-third of all tithes that were given to the sacrificial system and and the temple tax and all that. They would give one-third of those to the poor in the nation of Israel. And there's two main ideas I want you to see in these two verses. The first is, don't shut your hand And the second is, do not harden your heart. Because God cares about actions, but he also cares about the heart motive behind the action. God cares about action, but he also cares about the heart motive that's behind the action. And if you also look at verse 7, it says, Within your land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
So did you catch this? God's reminding them where their land came from. He's saying, I'm going to remind you where your land, the land that I gave you, make sure that you do not shut your hand and do not harden your heart lest you think that you earn this on your own. I gave it to you and you can feel free to give it as someone else has need. And so I know that in our culture today, when I think about hardness of heart and what is it that causes us to have this hardness of heart towards the poor, the first thing I think of is politics. How we view the political animal process is one of the biggest causes in our culture today, I think, of a hardness of heart, even in God's people, and how we think about and relate to the poor in our world. And I know whenever um, we think of politics, whenever we bring up politics, if you want to make anything awkward, just bring up politics, right? That's true of sermons, Thanksgiving. But we've got to talk about the elephant in the room, but also the elephant and the donkey, right? And so we've got to address this, this animal that um, I think is in our culture for sure and how many of us think and talk about the poor. And so I took this, this next slide directly from Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice. And he, in his book, just shows how this is a stereotype, but bear with me, that many people lean towards one direction or the other in how we view the cause of poverty. And he says, some people see it as it's social forces like racial prejudice, economic deprivation, joblessness, inequality. Other people lean a different direction. They see it as breakdown of family, lack of character, self-control, discipline, morality. And if you go back to chapter 15 of Deuteronomy, we see no mention in that book about the cause of poverty. It just says when someone's poor. Do not harden your heart. And as I think about that, I think, who are we most likely to be hardened against? Most likely someone who made some mistakes. Most likely someone who made some foolish decisions. Most likely, it's probably not the person who just had an accident and all of a sudden they're poor. It's probably someone who we would hold responsible a bit more in their poverty. And even that kind of person God is saying, do not harden your heart towards this kind of person. And I know our reaction to that might be, well, I mean, what are we supposed to do? I mean, I can't just keep on giving handouts. I want you to pull away from the whole handout idea. Because sometimes this person might need discipleship, not just a monetary handout. And I think many of us, myself, we can turn our back on someone because we just think, you know what, they're manipulative, they're just messing with the system, they're just using me. And God says, no, even that person, do not harden your heart towards that person. Tim Keller also says that we're divided also in how we view poverty's solution. So he says it this way, some believe the solution is primarily through progressive taxation and redistribution by the state. Others might say, primarily through voluntary and private giving. But my main point in bringing all this up is that for some reason, helping the poor has become just a political football in our country. And I bring this up not to choose sides in this debate, but mainly to help us understand 
this is what I think causes many of us to become hard-hearted towards those that are impoverished. It's true of me, at least. Secondly, it's not just politics that hardens our heart towards the poor. It's just life experience. I mean, everyone can think of someone, family member or someone else, relative, friend, that you've tried to help and they've manipulated or they've cheated the system or they've just found a way and you just feel like, you know what, I'm done with that. Just get a job. We all know someone who can work, but maybe they don't work. We all know someone like that. And so life experience can harden us towards someone in this situation. And so throughout this series, you're going to be tempted to think through, you know, what about this situation? What about that situation? What about this political view, that political view? And I want to encourage you this morning and for the next few weeks, for the next few weeks, we're asking you as a body of believers to just set all that stuff aside. And let God do his work. Just for a couple of weeks at least, just set it aside and let God do his work and refocus us as a church on what it means to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And so how does God want us as a church to be participants in his great mission described in Micah chapter 6 verse 8? So we're going to transition over to the New Testament. We see in the Old Testament, we see God wants Israel to treat, how how he wants to treat their poor. In the New Testament, we're going to see that we're called to something even greater than that and bigger than that. And this is described in John chapter 13, verse uh, 34 and 35. And the setting in John 13, 34 and 35 is Jesus Christ is in upper room with his disciples, and we're going to see throughout these next few passages that if God's desire for justice is to put things right, but this goes well beyond just helping the poor. This refers to relationship and every facet of our relationships together. And so look at John 13, 34 and 35. It says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. So how are the people out there going to know that the people in here belong to Jesus, according to this passage? If we have love for one another. I want you to catch this. Because there are many Christians today that think that there is some other way quicker way, more efficient way for us to make our belonging to Jesus known to the world. And we see that through the the quick labels of Christian trinkets. So often we get caught up in the Christian t-shirt, the slogan, the bumper sticker, slapping a label on something and calling it Christian. We get so caught up in that, we want that to be the way in which people know we belong to Jesus Christ. And this is why... This next slide is my favorite Christian t-shirt of all time. (laughs) Followed by my second favorite Christian t-shirt of all time. They will know we're Christians by the fish emblems on our speeding SUVs. (laughs) So do you guys remember the, the, the Jesus fish wars of a few years ago? They make the Jesus fish, and then someone wanted to be cute, and so they made the um the Darwin fish with the sprouted legs, and then Christians got angry. 
And so Christians made the Jesus fish eating the Darwin fish. Like that's going to convince them, right? And, and so it just gets ridiculous. And so we live in this culture of, this Christian culture of slap a label on my car, slap a label on my shirt. That's how the, not saying that all that's bad. I'm just trying to point out that the primary way in which people are going to know we belong to Christ is love for one another. Labels don't convince people. What convinces people is a love for each other. And so when unbelievers look at the church and see right relationship, justice inside the church, they know you belong to Jesus Christ. Francis Schaeffer says this, A relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. Apologetic is a defense of the faith. He says Christian community is the final defense of the faith. So you can have all the persuasive arguments, reasons, everything laid out, but if you don't love each other, it shoots holes right through what you just said. And it means nothing to someone who is an unbeliever if they don't see love inside the body of Christ, justice inside the body of Christ. If our relationships are bad, no one's going to listen to us. No one's going to hear us if things aren't just inside the church. And so you might say to yourself, you know, that's, that sounds, and the idea of what Christ is talking about in John, that sounds kind of ridiculous. I mean, Jesus being kind of idealistic, isn't he? Expecting this to play out. Have you seen the church lately? Have you seen the mess in the church? I mean, Jesus, I think he's a little off base here, right? A little too idealistic. And you might have a point until we turn over to Acts chapter 2. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to start in verse verse 42. Acts 2, verse 42. Here's what it says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So in Acts 2, here's what happens. Peter just preached a sermon in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people decide to start following Jesus. This incredible scene breaks out as a result. People are selling their possessions, giving the money away, sharing their food, inviting people into their homes. And this whole scene breaks out because these people realize one thing. When we have Christ in common, we have all things in common. When we share Christ, we can share our stuff. We recognize our connection with other people through Christ. It's only then that we begin to detach from our things and not hold them as tightly. We have Christ in common. We have all things in common. And I want you to see, look down at verse 47 again. Because after this scene breaks out, verse 47 says, They had favor with all the people. And I want you to catch this. 
That's a fulfillment or an example of what's happened, of what Christ said would happen in John chapter 13. When it says they had favor with all the people, that means that everyone, believers, unbelievers alike, are able to peer in to this community and want to be a part of it. So they peer in, they have favor with all people, and then it says the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. There's growth. Because the unbeliever can peer into the body of Christ, see what's happening, want to be a part of it, and say, you know what, I want to follow Christ as well, and join in fellowship with them. So what we see, I think, in this passage is pretty, pretty profound. The display here has to be public. This shouldn't be some private thing. It should be a public thing. And this raises a question for us, I think, in our world today. When do unbelievers ever get to peer in to the body of Christ in this way and see this kind of thing happening inside the church? When, when can they really do that in our midst? And so one example that we've tried, to, we've tried to apply this in our high school and junior high ministry, one of the ways we do that is we have a once-a-month gathering. We call it Reunite on Wednesday nights. And the purpose of that event is not to have just a Bible study, but it is to have more of a social gathering or even a service project gathering. And the purpose for that, we say to our students, please bring people that you think would never come to anything else that we do. Let's go bowling so they can begin to see the love that is hopefully shared among our students and desire to be a part of that. Think of a less threatening way of bringing people into the body of Christ, at least initially, in hopes that they'll come to know Christ and be a part of the body of Christ. And so if you, if you get this idea in John 13, just think about this, how this would revolutionize, revolutionize your small group environments. What if you began to think through social gatherings like this? And as you know, uh, football season starts today. Real football starts today. That's what Gary was talking about, by the way. But real football starts today. So what if you started to think through, hey, how can we get some guys together and have a less threatening environment and, and hopefully let them see into the body of Christ and desire to be a part of that? What about once a month dinner parties with your small group? You decide to have a dinner party together and invite people that don't even know Christ just to build friendship in hopes that they'll come to know Christ as a result of those relationships. Here's one that'll blow your mind. What about, in about two weeks, we're going to have a chance for you guys to get on board with service opportunities in our city. What if you invited unbelievers to join your small group in service endeavors throughout our city because there are many unbelievers who believe that justice is needed as well. And what if that was a way for us to bridge in relationally with many of them and say, hey, you know what? There's a reason why you believe this. And it's Jesus. And it's this need for redemption, need for justice. They sense the need for it. What if we invited them into it, let them see the process and see the love that's inside the body of Christ? You know, recently... Um, several years ago, I should say, I stuck my foot in my mouth, my, my mouth, and it's happened since then as well, but I was at a small group, and on a Friday night, and there was a guy who's been coming to our group for a while, and he's now moved on with his family to the East Coast. They're out of town now, but they used to come for several years, and this guy, I didn't know him that well at the time, 
And I just started a conversation. I said, hey, so tell me how you came to faith in Christ. What's your test? He goes, well, he goes, I'm not actually a Christian. And at first I thought he was joking. I was like, no, seriously, man. And he goes, no, I'm really not. And I'm sitting there thinking like, how do you back out of this one, right? I mean, it's, it's cool, man, right? I mean, just how do you back out of that conversation? And we begin to talk through that. And I wish I could tell you that he became a Christian and is a happy ending. I don't know where he stands spiritually now. I don't think he's even a believer still. But my point is, why was it this one family just came to our group over and over and over again? And we're a part of that. And we're upfront about, yeah, we don't really believe this. We just want to come and hang out with you guys. And it wasn't me. It was others that brought them. But how amazing is that? And how awesome would it be if that was actually a common occurrence where unbelievers felt like they could come in and just be a part of it and seek it out and figure out what they believe in the midst of community. Some people use the expression, in order before we believe, we sometimes need to belong. And so what if that led to people here being open to bringing people in like that and being okay with that and letting people just figure out what they believe while they're in our midst, hopefully in context of community with us. And this is what it means to have this kind of love and, and fellowship on display in the body of Christ. There's a word, this word fellowship, in Acts 2.42. And it's a Greek word, it's koinonia. And I want to define this word for us and paint a picture for us what it actually is And so uh, fellowship, koinonia in the Greek, means close mutual association, sharing, and participation. And I know when I read that definition that that does not clear up the definition whatsoever to many of us. I want to give you the next definition by John Loftness. He says, fellowship is participating together in the life and truth made possible by the Holy Spirit through our union with Christ. Fellowship is sharing something in common on the deepest possible level of human relationship, our experience of God himself. In short, what he is saying is that fellowship is an event. It's a state of being. Many of us think of fellowship as an event. Like I go to the store, I see this person. We had a warm conversation. They're a believer. We had fellowship. That's not fellowship. That's an event. But it's a state of being. It's this recognition that we have something in common that's so much bigger than us, Jesus Christ himself, and we have fellowship together. Now, I know even that's still hard to wrap our minds around, so I want to paint for you a picture of what this looks like in the New Testament. Before we get there, I want, you to show, I want to show you how all this ties into the concept of justice. Because there's another Hebrew word in the Old Testament. I'm not going to try to pronounce that. But it's being just or being righteous. Alec Moyer says, being right with God and therefore committed to putting right all other relationships in life. And so this idea of fellowship, this idea that justice inside the church looks like putting right all other relationships in life. Justice is about helping the poor. It is. But it's not all it is. And so if you're someone who you want to help the poor. You like to serve in those kinds of ways. But all your relationships are a mess. That's not justice. 
If all your relationships are in disarray, but you just like to volunteer for lots of things, that's just one small facet of justice. True justice inside the church includes helping the poor, like we described this morning, but also all the multifacets of the body of Christ in your relationships. And so I want to show you this morning what does fellowship look like based on some of the one another's in the New Testament. We'll cover these very quickly. You could also rephrase that question, what does justice inside the church look like? Mark 9.50, be at peace with each other. Is your life characterized by peace? Do you have lots of enemies? Are you at peace with people? Romans 12.15 refers to rejoicing with each other. When something good happens to someone else, do you see it as, yes, this happened to all of us because of our connection through Christ? I can rejoice with them because of my position and their position before Christ together since we are in fellowship with one another. On the flip side of that, Romans 12.15 talks about weeping with each other. When something bad happens to someone else, do you think of it like, you know, I'm glad it's not me? Or do you see, no, when they suffer, I suffer? We weep together because we are one in Christ. Galatians 5.13 refers to serving each other. This is, would include helping the poor also inside the church. Carrying one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2. And I love this one because this is referring not just to carrying someone's emotional burden. This is talking about carrying someone's sin burden. Because the passage says, Carry each other's burdens, and in so doing, you fulfill the law of Christ. And what it's talking about is someone who's walking along through their, their life, and they fall into sin. And they need someone to come alongside them and help them carry their load of sin, just like Christ did. And so in a sense, you become Christ to someone in that moment. That's fellowship, carrying their sin burden. The next one we find in Ephesians 4.32, forgiving each other. Are you someone who forgives easily in your life? Confessing your sins to each other in James uh, chapter 5, verse 16. We're to confess our sins not just to God, but also to each other. And James 5.16 says, and in, by doing this, you will be healed. It heals the relationship when you confess your sins to each other. Pray for one another, James 5.16 Bear with one another, Colossians 3.13. And I love this one because this relates really well to my high school students. Bear with one another. Occasionally I'll get a, a student that will say, or I'll see a student come to the Outback for a while in our high school or junior high ministry, and then I won't see him for a while. And I might see him and say, hey, we've been missing you at the Outback. Where have you been? How are you doing? And they might say something like this. Well, you know, there's just too much immaturity down there at the Outback. And I don't argue. I mean, I know there's immaturity at the Outback. I mean, I'm down there. <laughs> Tim Cartwright's down there. And so I know there's immaturity. I'm not going to argue that point. They're, they're right about that. But I try to graciously then say to them, mature people can handle someone else's immaturity. So when you come to me and you say, you know, yeah, I'm, you're basically saying I'm more mature than them and I can't handle their immaturity. And I'd say, well, that's kind of an immature thing to say, right? 
See how that works? So do you bear with each other? Does the mature bear with the immature? Do you put up with one another? And when you look at these commands in Christ's command in John 13, and you see it all play out in Acts 2 and also the one another's that are throughout the New Testament, this raises a really important question, and it's this. Are we called to go to church or to be the church? Are we just called to attend worship services? Was that the plan? Are we just called to come into gatherings, hear some songs, hear a message, and then just walk out? Is that the plan that Jesus had? I don't think that's the plan that he had. I think he had more than that in mind. And I think we're called to actually be the church, not just attend worship gatherings. Because many of us see church as something that we attend, not a people that we're a part of. And so none of these things we're describing this morning can happen if all we do is just show up for a service and then sneak out and show up and sneak out. And I think we see this play out in many of our lives. And so I want you to look finally in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And this is the last one another that we'll cover this morning. Hebrews 10, 24, it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. And I love that because it's a challenge. It's a reminder that even back in the time the New Testament was written, that people were struggling. That some were saying, yeah, I got, I got me and Jesus. That's all I need. These people over here, I mean... I'm done with them. And so they're already neglecting to meet together, even when this is being written. And so the writer encourages, let us consider, by meeting together, how to stir up one another towards love and good deeds. And I've been just fixated on this idea of what what does it mean to stir up each other? Because there's just something about being around other believers, like-minded believers, that just stirs you up in a way that being alone doesn't. You ever notice that our hobbies don't have this effect? Like, you don't go do your hobbies and think, you know what, I want to go feed the poor. Right? Like, that doesn't happen. What happens is you're around other people, like-minded saints, And you find yourself being stirred up towards love and good deeds in the body of Christ. I think you see this especially in our church with fostering and adoption. There have been so many people that have come through this. They've started that process, and then someone that they know begins the same process. Why is that? Because there's a stirring up each other towards love and good deeds. And they're stirring each other up. And this kind of thing can only happen if you insert yourself into this kind of fellowship, into this kind of community. And so do you put yourself in a place where that kind of thing can happen? And as we look at this whole list, this whole picture of fellowship and the one another's, there's only one way for this to happen and for this to play out in our body. And it's only if you realize that your main resource is the cross itself. Ephesians chapter 2, 13 and 14, Paul writes, But now in Christ Jesus, 
You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's a big verse. That's a big passage, some big concepts being communicated here. And this is not just about our fellowship with Christ being allowed because of the blood of Christ. Of the blood of Christ. This is the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile in that day. There's a separation between people because of all kinds of reasons. And the writer here is saying that because of Christ and the blood he shed on the cross, we get to have fellowship with him, but also with each other. Also other Christians. And so if it was true for Jews and Gentiles, it's true for rich and poor. It's true for immature and mature. It's true for young and old. We have fellowship with him, and that fellowship leads to a fellowship with each other. And this is what it means to have justice inside the church. Fellowship. Making right all relationships in life. And so today I want to invite you to respond to this, what you've heard this morning. And if, um, if you're a believer, if you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Christ yet, but you're here, I want to thank you for being here and putting up with us, bearing with us. But we have to agree, right, that things are broken. We've got to agree that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And so if you're not a believer, I'm just going to challenge you for a little bit this morning. Apart from Christ, what's the solution? Apart from Christ, what is the solution to the brokenness that we see in the world today? And so if you're not a believer, I want to challenge you to do something really bold and crazy this morning. I want you to go out to the front desk, the information desk out in the lobby, and pick up one of these um, community group, small group lists, front and back, and just call up one of the groups, at least for the Justice Series. Call them and say, first off, I'm not a Christian, but I want to join your small group for a little bit. Is that okay? I think you'll be surprised at how you're received. And think through this idea of justice. And our hope is that you begin to get exposed to the body of Christ in a new and different kind of way. And you begin to see something in the body of Christ that you long and you crave for. Firstly, Jesus Christ himself. Secondly, fellowship with his saints. And if you're someone who is a believer, but you're not yet connected through a small group, I'm going to invite you to do the exact same thing. Get connected into fellowship and community. And at least for this series, try it out and be a part of community in that kind of way. If you're someone who is already part of a small group, I'm going to ask you to be asking people around you this morning, hey, are you involved in a small group? If not, come to the one that we have Wednesday night, Sunday night, Friday night. Just come visit with us and look at getting plugged into a small group. And today, today we've explored the idea of what it means to have justice inside the church. This next statement might surprise you. I'm saying this. We've talked a lot about fellowship and community. But community is not even the point. The point is for us to be a community on a mission together for the kingdom of God. And we'll talk more about that, what that mission looks like next week. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we're so grateful that we get to be a part of your body. 
get to have fellowship with you, but also fellowship with one another. We thank you for, you've given us a picture in the New Testament of what it means to have that kind of fellowship. We thank you for that picture. We pray that it begins to play itself out as we think through this big idea of what it means to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.